0: Well, good morning. You would turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are the owner of a factory. And you've got a very difficult job that you need two people to do. It's a very difficult job. And so you hire two people. Now these people are virtually identical. They're the same age, same gender, uh, same skill set, uh, the same physical condition. All of these things are roughly the same. And you create roughly the same work environment for them. So you create the same general workspace, uh, the same lighting and air quality and, and overall environment. All these things are the same. But there's one difference, you tell the first person, after a year of doing this difficult job, I'm going to pay you $30,000. You tell the second person, at the end of a year of doing the same job, I'm going to pay you $30 million. Which of those two people do you think is going to persevere in doing the work? Which of them do you think is going to say, you know, on the hardest of days, it's still worth it? Well, the point is this. What you believe about the future dramatically impacts how you live in the present. That is ineradicably true of human beings. What we believe about the future dramatically impacts the way we live in the present. We are hope-based creatures. And everybody tries to tell themselves a story, Christian or non-Christian, tells themselves a story about where the future is headed. And something about that future keeps us going in the present. But only Christianity offers the kind of hope that really satisfies, that really enables us to persevere even in the hardest of days. Because only Christianity shows us the kind of life that will be ultimately meaningful and how our future actually sheds light on everything we do here and now. And 1 Peter is one of the key books in the Bible that speaks to this dynamic of the importance of hope for life in the present. Because for Christians, hope is not just pie in the sky— Although, as C.S. Lewis said, there is either pie in the sky or there isn't. But the reality is it's not just about some wishful thinking about the future. It's very much tied to how we live now. Or to put it another way, and this is the main idea for today's sermon, hope in Christ produces holiness in life. Hope in Christ produces holiness in life. So follow along with you as I read from 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 13 to 21. Therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance but as he who called you is holy Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So Peter begins essentially where he left off in the previous section, talking about hope. And Peter wants us to set our hope fully on Christ. Specifically, to set our hope on his coming again. Now you may not be aware of this. Uh, Different church traditions observe things differently. But today is actually Ascension Sunday. It's the day when Christians in many different traditions remember that Christ not only rose from the dead, as we gloriously heard the choir sing about a few moments ago, but that he is ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. Now that in and of itself is good news for us in a lot of ways. But one of the reasons it's good news for us is that he said he's going to prepare a place for us. And in going, he said he's going to come again. And even though that day is still yet far off, and nobody knows the day exactly when he's coming, But remembering his ascension is to remember the promise that he is coming. He's coming again, and when he comes, it's going to be a glorious day. It's going to be a day unlike anything else we've experienced before. And it's hard because right now we're plodding along day by day with all of the challenges and busyness of life, and we don't have a day on the calendar It's not like your next vacation where you sort of plan in advance. I know Pastor Tim has a countdown to his next vacation. It's not like that. (laughs) But we know that he's coming on a day someday. Might even be a day like today. A Sunday. Wouldn't that be great? We're all sitting together in church and Jesus returns. Or it could be a Tuesday or a Thursday. But he's coming. He really is coming. I hope you believe that. Because what you believe about his coming is going to impact how you live every day. And when he comes, he's bringing a glorious inheritance with him. This is the living hope that Peter's been talking about. The inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade the salvation of our souls, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. That's the glorious inheritance that he's bringing with us, with him. Everything our hearts truly long for will be ours when he comes. See, there really is happiness out there. For all the sorrows and all the pain and all the heartache we experience in this life, as Christians, we believe that there is real happiness and everlasting happiness coming. Do you believe that? It's actually coming. And when he comes, it's going to be pure and inexpressible joy forever. It's never going to end. See, all the joys in this life are either tainted by sin, there's either something sort of twisted about the joy in this life, or even the purest of joys fades with the passing of time. But when Christ comes, it's only going to be pure joy and that forever. It's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine because as Peter says, and he mentions it again in verse 17, we're a people in exile. And whether you consider it physical exile or spiritual exile, the one thing everybody in exile has in common is that they know they're not yet home. They know that this place is not the way that it should be. Now, most of the suffering we experience in this life is common to all people. Uh, The pain of losing a loved one, the decay of our own bodies, the anxiety in our relationships, the struggles and hardships of just living day to day in a fallen world. These are common to all people, Christian and non-Christian. But the difference for Christians What those who have trusted in Christ have uniquely is that we know there's an expiration date to that suffering. It's not going to last forever. It's only going to be light and momentary if you can imagine that. Now, if you don't know Christ, then you don't have the same hope. If you're sitting here today, I'm glad you're here. If you don't know Christ, this is the place to be. But the Bible is very clear. Those who don't know Christ do not have a hope of eternal happiness. But in fact, the sorrows of this life are only the beginning of an eternity of sorrows. Consider that for a moment. Consider how differently life would be if you thought the sorrows of right now are only the beginning. It's actually a foretaste of something far worse. Imagine that. But for those who don't know Christ, you might try to maximize your happiness here and now, and many try to. Maybe you try to uh, put all your hope in your retirement, or put all your hope in uh, some other wishful thinking. Maybe your team's going to win it all this year. Those are the kinds of things we put our hope in. Or maybe worse, we turn to drugs and alcohol, or sex, or pornography, or overeating, or hours and hours of mindless entertainment. And apart from Christ, we turn to those things sometimes because we're actually deceived into thinking those things are going to make us happy. But I actually think more often the case is that people turn to those things because life just seems hopeless and I want something to take the edge off. I don't think most people actually think that some sort of addiction is going to make them happy. And certainly those who are deep in them realize that they don't. But we want to take the edge off. And so we lull ourselves into a kind of stupor, whether it's through entertainment or drunkenness, a literal drunken stupor. But consider what Peter calls Christians to be like. He says, be sober-minded. Prepare your minds for action. The literal Greek phrase there is, gird up the loins of your mind. This is back in the day when they wore long robes and they would gather them up for battle. Be ready for something. Be ready to engage this world head on, knowing the hope that you have. But the challenge for us, especially as Christians, is that we allow the distractions of this world to take our minds off of our hope. We allow our vision to be clouded by our circumstances. And that too affects the way we live here and now. And so we have to be certain that we have set our hope fully on Christ and not just half-heartedly. If the problem for non-Christians is that there really isn't hope for the future, the problem for Christians is that we are half-hearted in our anticipation of it. We don't spend enough time thinking about heaven. I really believe that. Instead, we spend a lot of time thinking and worrying about the things that burden us here and now, don't we? Think about your inner life, your thoughts, your desires. How much of them are consumed with the reality of eternal glory and happiness? And how much of them are consumed with what's going to happen this afternoon? What's going to happen tomorrow? What's the next thing that's going to cause me pain? We worry about our health, our families, our vocational aspirations. We worry about whether our country is ever going to pull out of this moral tailspin that it's in. But what are these compared to heaven? What are these compared to knowing Christ face to face? Perhaps a good diagnostic question for us would be to ask, how would I feel if all of my earthly hopes we're dashed, we're unfulfilled? What if our health never gets better than it is today? What if our families are never reconciled? What if our vocational aspirations don't pan out the way we want them to? And what if our culture only gets worse in the days to come? What then? How are we going to carry ourselves in this world? Well, the negative emotions we might experience as we anticipate all these dreaded possibilities actually corresponds to our love of those things. If you love this world, then your anger when this world isn't the way you want it to be will be very high. If you love lesser things, your anxiety about those lesser things going awry is going to be very high. And we live in an age full of anxiety. But for the Christian, think about our hope. Set our hope fully on Christ and his return. We sing about it. We pray about it. But are we thinking about it? Does it consume our hearts and our desires? Because if our hope is fully set on Christ, then we will be better equipped to live in the present. As Sinclair Ferguson said in his excellent book, Devoted to God, he said, Our growth in holiness is intimately related to how we view the future and how firm a grip we have on the reality of the world to come and our destiny in it. And so this is where Peter is leading with the argument. He wants us to have our hope fully set on Christ and his coming so that we will be fully devoted to Christ in the present. And so this last section here, verses 14 to 21, there's actually two commands in this section, so I want you to look with me. In verse 15, he says, Be holy in all your conduct. And then there's sort of a parallel command in verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, to be holy is essentially to be devoted to God. And Peter as he explains what it means to be holy or why we should be holy, he gives two qualifiers. So I want you to see this in the text as well. He says, be holy, but go back to verse 14. It says, as obedient children, be holy. And then verse 17, if you call on him as father, conduct yourselves with fear. So what Peter's getting at is that our holiness Our conduct in the present time is actually more a product of our relationship to God than it is about some objective uh, uh, abstract moral standard, okay? Being holy is more about relating rightly to the God we call Father than it is about simply doing right or wrong. It is about doing right or wrong, but it's mainly about how we relate to God and whether we are set apart And devoted to him. Again, Sinclair Ferguson is excellent here. He says: holiness is a deeply personal, intense, loving devotion to him, a belonging to him that is irreversible, unconditional, without any reserve on our part. And he goes on to say: to be holy, to be a saint, is in simple terms to be devoted to God. Now, just a quick note on this. To be a saint is to be a Christian. There are no Christians who are not saints. Okay, the word saint means holy one, holy man or holy woman. Now, there's actually two kinds of holiness. So I want to make a brief aside on this. We are made holy by virtue of being children of God. So when you're saved, When you've repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, you are made holy. You are set apart and devoted to God for his purposes. That happens in a moment. But there is another kind of holiness whereby our character, our loves, the things we desire, the way we think and speak is conformed more and more into the image of Christ. And so we begin to reflect his character. This is why the disciples became called Christians, Because they exhibited the character of Christ. And this is a process that goes on for the rest of our earthly lives until we reach glory. And it's this second kind that Peter's referring to here. To be holy and becoming more like Christ. So Peter wants his people, his readers, which would have been true in the first century. It's true of us today. He wants us to be more like Jesus. To think his thoughts after him. To speak with the kind of compassion and boldness and firmness that Jesus spoke with. To do the things that he would have us to do. And to abstain from the things he would have us abstain from. He wants us to love the things that Jesus loves. And yes, to hate the things that Jesus hates. You know the Bible actually tells us to hate. It says hate What is evil cling to what is good. That's what God wants of us in terms of our holiness. To learn to hate those things even in our own hearts that are evil and contrary to God's design. Now, you know, if you're a Christian, how slow and painful this process can be. Because, in effect, uh, what we are doing is unlearning our old way of doing things. Look at what he says here in verse 14. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So that means every one of us apart from Christ has a heart that desires wrong things. And we desire good things very poorly if at all. And so part of the process of growing in holiness is having to unlearn all those things that we used to think and believe and love. And that could be difficult. In fact, Paul uses the illustration of putting to death the deeds of the body or to be crucified to the world. Now, if you've been in church a while, you're probably familiar with the method of execution called crucifixion. The crucifixion wasn't actually about the pain of the nails. It was that. But ultimately, the way a person died through crucifixion was suffocation. I think that's a good image for us. Think of your fleshly desires, the passions of your former ignorance, as these things that creep up in your heart, and you got to choke them out. you got to cut off the oxygen to them. you got to kill them. And that's a very painful process to learn to do that, to, to suffocate those things that we naturally are inclined to do, those passions of our former ignorance, and every one of us lives with them. Okay, As long as we're in this body, we will deal with the passions of our former ignorance. And what Peter's saying here is, don't, don't go back there. Okay, your, your flesh has this gravitational pull, and you got to just choke it off until it dies. That's a gruesome image, but that's exactly what we need to do. And that's what God is doing in us as we grow in grace and grow in holiness. And the world is no help to us in this. Uh, you know this, okay? The world wants to tell us, be true to yourself. In fact, uh, many people just came through graduation season, uh, college graduation, high school graduation. This is, it's, it's like a plague on our society, all these graduation speeches, because everybody says, just go out there and you know, take life by the horns and be true to yourself. That's a horrible advice. Be true to yourself? Myself lived in former ignorance, Myself was an enemy of God. (laughs) Myself loved evil things. What the Bible says is, don't be true to yourself, be true to God. Be true to his word. Because when you find yourself being true to his word, you'll find that it actually does lead to happiness. Not necessarily circumstance changes, but it leads to, as Pastor Doug prayed, the fruit of the spirit, which is joy, real joy. Not the fleeting pleasures of sin that are here for a moment and gone, leaving a trail of sorrow in their wake, but a deep and lasting joy that only builds and grows as we move toward our blessed hope, the appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in that day, the beauty and the glory is in part that this work of killing sin will finally be done. You and I are in a battle. Later this year, we're going to read Pilgrim's Progress together, and hopefully you'll get a sense of it. One of the things that the king gives to Christian as he goes on his journey is a suit of armor and weapons. You know what those weapons are for? They're for fighting. That's what we're doing in our growth in holiness. We're fighting We're fighting to put to death the deeds of the body so that we might live in righteousness and that the the love of Christ would just overflow in us and from us to others. That's a beautiful picture, but it can be a painful process. And so it's easy to see why hope is so crucial here. Because if I believe Jesus is coming back and that he's bringing a reward of infinite happiness with him, isn't that going to change my zeal for the fight? Aren't I going to be ready to fight my flesh, to fight the desires of the world that are constantly trying to influence me? If I know that the battle is one day going to end, well, that changes a whole lot. I've never served in the military. I thank God for those of you who have. But I have to imagine, if you lose any hope that there's going to be victory, it becomes very difficult to fight. But if there's a hope, not just a hope like, okay, yeah, maybe one day, but there's a certain hope. My suffering, including the anguish of putting to death the deeds of the body, my suffering has an expiration date. That makes all the difference, doesn't it? It keeps you in the fight. And so to consider this great reward, what other life could we possibly live? Think about that. Who else could I live to please but my heavenly Father who's given me abundantly more than I could have ever asked for? Who's given me the blessing of his word and his spirit to transform my heart? Who's given me the blessing of a refuge in a local church? Think about that. This should be a place of refuge because out there in the world, they're going to try and bombard you with all kinds of messages that are contrary to God's will. But we come here and we worship and we come and we we lay ourselves at the feet of Jesus and we say, Lord, have your way in us. Change my heart. And t- collectively, how much of a difference does it make to know we're not alone in this fight? If you know your Bibles, you remember the story of Elijah, and he feels like he's all alone. And Jezebel's after him, and even though he had this great victory on Mount Carmel, he can't help but go to the pit of despair. And so he runs off into the desert. He says, I'm the only one left, Lord. What does God say? (laughs) No, you're not. I've preserved my people. And that's what this gathering is meant to be. This gathering are comrades in arms. And we're fighting this fight together in pursuit of holiness, knowing that our Lord is coming back to bring the decisive victory. So hope changes our desires so that we will want to be holy and want to be more like Christ. Do you know why we struggle with holiness? We struggle with holiness because we haven't set our hope fully on Christ. We struggle with holiness because our vision is so dimmed by the prospects of the immediate future. But to imagine the world that Peter describes, now that's everything. So our hope is, of course, one great and glorious Motivation for holiness in the present. But there's another future-oriented motivation, verse 17. And that is that we are accountable to God. The one that we as Christians call Father is also the one who judges all the earth impartially. So we have this glorious inheritance to look forward to, but we also have the sobering reality that God is going to judge all of us. Now, when I was growing up, my grandparents were... Some of my earliest Christian influences. Love my grandparents. Uh, And my grandmother took my little kid's adventure Bible, and she highlighted two verses in that Bible Matthew 12, 36, and 37. These are not kitchen calendar type verses, but let me read them to you. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Oof, thanks, Grandma. (laughs) But seriously, thank you, Grandma. But I tell you, praise God for grandmothers who put the fear of God in their grandchildren. (laughs) Amen? I don't know how many of us live with the reality that everything we think and say and do is going to be judged by God. Now, Christians have a glorious hope. That because of the blood of Jesus, we do not face eternal condemnation at that judgment. But I tell you this, every one of us will appear at the judgment seat of Christ and we will give an account for the deeds done in the body. Everything we think and say and do, even every secret thing, is going to be brought to light on that day. And so we have this glorious hope, but we also have a very sobering reality And I'll tell you, let me encourage you, if you're here, and even if you've professed the name of Christ for many years, but you haven't really seen any growth in holiness, you haven't seen your desires change to want to love God and love the things that he wants you to love, then maybe today is a day to examine your heart to see if you're really in the faith. Because you don't want to show up on that day unprepared. This church is a blessed refuge for those who are pursuing Christ, but it can be deceiving if you're not. You can think that because I come in these doors week by week and I sit in this pew and I listen to this guy talk at me for a half hour every week that that's the same as being a Christian. It is not. The judge of all the earth will judge impartially. So the difference then between the Christian and the non-Christian is not whether we will face judgment but it's what we call the judge. We as Christians are sinners like everybody else. But if we're in Christ, we have the privilege of calling the judge of all the earth, our father. Think about that. What a difference that makes to show up on judgment day and to have known him as our father. And because we know him as father, we're motivated all the more to conduct ourselves with fear. Not out of a sense of dread or fear of punishment, but because we know our father loves us. This past week I had the privilege of being in Cincinnati at a preaching workshop and we were in the Psalms together. One of the interesting things about the book of Psalms is that there's a pattern between the blessing of God in forgiveness and the fear of God. There is forgiveness with God so that he may be feared. And this was Peter's own experience if you remember Luke chapter 5. He's out fishing not catching anything. Jesus says throw your net over here they had this huge haul of fish. And what's Peter's immediate reaction? Boy, thanks for this fish. That's great. Let's go, let's go have a feast. No. He says, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. There is a relationship between the blessing of God and fear. Not out of a get away from me. We want to be near to him as a child wants to be near his father. But there is a healthy reverence and a fear of God. And in the midst of all of this, not only do we know we'll be accountable to him, but we also know the price of our redemption. Notice it says in verse 18, knowing you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Notice it says, it doesn't say we were ransomed from hell. It doesn't say we were redeemed from punishment. It doesn't say you were ransomed from experiencing any bad circumstances in life. No, no, we were ransomed from our old way of living because of those passions of our former ignorance. We needed to be redeemed in our way of life. And so if you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you today, becoming a Christian means a radical change in your life. You no longer get to call the shots, but there's a book that tells you how to live. That's what it means to be a Christian. But praise God that he sent Jesus so that we could be redeemed from that. Because the Bible says before that we were enslaved to our former ways. We couldn't get out of it on our own. But when Christ came, we began to see how empty that life was. We began to love him. A precious lamb without blemish or spot. When you come to know Christ, you realize that life isn't all about maximizing our happiness here and now. It's about maximizing our happiness in Him. And the way He accomplished this redemption is just amazing. God wasn't half-hearted in accomplishing the work of redemption. Let us not be half-hearted in following Him, in growing in holiness and godliness. He knew we were sinners, and that as sinners we deserved death and eternal condemnation. And he knew that only blood was going to save us, was going to atone for our sins. But this plan wasn't quickly implemented. It happened over time. And it happened over time so that we would see him as more glorious. It wasn't just that we needed forgiveness of sins. It's that we needed a change of heart so that we learned to see Christ as ultimately worthy of all our devotion. And so the story comes to a climax in the book of Revelation where it says those in the heavenly gathering sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Worthy is the Lamb, as we just sang. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen? This plan unfolded for the sake of us, that we might behold Christ in the wondrous mystery of his coming as more worthy of our devotion and more worthy of all glory and honor so that our faith and hope would be in God. So let me ask you, how do you know that your hope is really in Christ? How do you know? This past week, we lost one of the pillars of our church, Mr. David Chapman. And as I listened to those sharing stories at his funeral yesterday, I couldn't help but be gripped by the thought that his life embodied what Peter's talking about here. A man with a great and glorious hope pursued a life of holiness all the days of his life here. This was a man who had a keen sense of God's sovereignty, even from a young age. This was a man who conducted himself with integrity, with honor, honor is missing today isn't it he was a generous man a compassionate man a man who was devoted to god devoted to his family devoted to his church and his community and i can't help but think that it was his hope in christ that made him devoted the way that he was and we in this church are better off for having people like david chapman in our midst So let me challenge you, challenge all of us to set our hope fully on Christ so that we might be fully devoted to him all of our days here. Let's pray. Our Father, what a challenge it is to set our hope fully on Christ. God, you know the weakness of our hearts, the weakness of our faith, the weakness of living in such a way that we just constantly have to come back to the well to drink. And Lord, we know that it's the the well by which we'll never go thirsty again, but we have to keep coming back because our sight is so dim, we become parched of hope. So Father, I pray you would help us to set our hope fully on the grace that is to be ours at the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ when he returns in glory. And may that hope motivate us to renounce ungodliness in the present time. May we be conformed more and more into the image of Christ, to live according to his word and his will, to follow you knowing that you are the judge of all the earth. And though we get to call you Father, that we will ultimately be accountable to you. God, help us to reckon with these things this morning. And God, give us grace to live in a way that you will be well pleased. We play this in Christ's name, amen.